0: I discovered something this week. It's really hard to write a sermon when the World Cup is going on. At least for this pastor, okay? I was very distracted this week by so many great games. I watched one of the most exciting games on Friday, the US team versus England. It was, it was a tie, okay? And that's exciting in soccer, all right? It's actually exciting when you tie. I mean, it was a t- an exciting for the US to tie a great country like England in soccer. So, but anyway, my wife was like, you are a maniac. I'm running around the living room screaming my brains out. She's like, if only you got this excited about Jesus, and I said, I do, I do, but I'm here to preach, and I'm excited to preach, and I want to know, are you excited to open the Bible and study the book of Romans, okay, okay, good. If you're new, if you're visiting, I see new faces, so glad you're here. You need to know you're joining us in the middle of a series in the book of Romans that's been really rich, really deep, very provocative, it's challenged our thinking, it has made us think deeply about things we've never thought about and worship God like never before, and today we go to chapter 11, and I want you to just pull out your Bible, open to 11, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, ushers are coming down the aisle, you're not only, are you, you're definitely going to want a Bible in your hands, um, and if you don't own a Bible, you can take that as a, as a gift, so take it home, would you? I can take you to the exact place that I was sitting when Romans chapter 11 first clicked for me in my head and my heart. I remember that day vividly. And it's not, a, it's not because I'd never read Romans 11. I'm sure I'd read it many times. But there was something about this moment where for the first time, all of the awe and all of the sweeping argumentation of this chapter, it just captured my imagination. And there were two reasons for this. The first reason is that when I was reading Romans 11 on this particular day, I was looking out of the dining room window of our Eugene home across the yard at our neighbor's home and this home was owned by a couple named Reuben and Margie uh, Sheldon. Sheldon and Ru- Ru- Sheldon and Margie Reuben. I got it. Remember them really well. Apparently, they were really close. Actually, they were. <laughs> Sheldon and Margie Reuben were the most wonderful, hospitable Jewish couple that I have ever met. I would never really been around a Jewish family before. And so it was wonderful to watch all of their traditions, all of their holidays. They would often invite us into their home and let us see what was going on. I remember one, one year vividly, Bridget was like two and a half, Bridget who now sings on our worship team. We took her trick-or-treating. We knocked on Sheldon and Margie's house and they said, come in. And they saw Bridget's costume and she looked adorable. And they said, come in. And we walked into their dining room and their dining room was filled with all of these friends from their synagogue and they were celebrating a Jewish holiday that I'd never heard of called Purim. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's, very, very, it's a very festive costumes. And they're having this feast and they're just gooing and they're goggling over Bridget, how cute she is. And they find out that she loves to sing. So the whole, the whole party sits down and they say, Bridget, sing us a song. Now here's what I'm thinking immediately. I'm thinking most of the songs that Bridget knows she learned in Sunday school. So this could get real awkward. It's like... <laughs> Jesus loves me. Where's this going, right? But she, luckily, she she defaulted to Phantom of the Opera, and she's (laughs) saying something amazing, right? But I, I remember sitting there and thinking, for the first time in my life, thinking probably something like what Paul was thinking, thinking, God, how does this work? Because these are your people. These are your chosen Old Testament covenant people, and they've totally rejected Jesus as Messiah. How does this work? Now if you've been with us from chapter nine on, you know that's Paul's whole purpose for nine through 11. He stops and goes, wait a minute, I've just explained from chapters one through eight the sweeping massive blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ only to come to the stark realization that in large part, Paul says, my own kinsmen, my Jewish brothers and sisters, have totally rejected Jesus. And I remember for the first time, actually feeling that, looking through the window at, at the home of Sheldon and Margie, who I loved, and going, how does this work? And then I read chapter 11. And I remember... Pulling away from the table and going, that's the most staggering, spectacular, strange argument that I've ever heard about what's coming in the future for God's people Israel. Have you ever read it? Have you ever actually dealt with the argument? River West. I want to prepare you do not be surprised if in all of this study so far election and predest all these big things we've been talking about do not be surprised if the most boggling thing that you learn is actually still in front of us at the end of chapter 11 because Paul is about to Paul is about to say now I'm not done with the with the problem of of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Paul says, there's more to this story. And you got to understand, Christians, what's going to happen. So let me just give you a little preview. Before we start the argument in verse one, go to the end of the chapter. Let me just read a couple verses. Just, I'm just going to dip my toe in where we'll be in three weeks so you can see where Paul's headed. So like, here's verse 25. Now, Paul's talking to a church that's primarily made of Gentile Christians in Rome with some Jewish Christians, and they're experiencing a little bit of tension in their community. And look what Paul says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, you Gentile Christians. He's talking to the Gentiles here. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Look at this phrase. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. What does that mean? A partial hardening? Think specifically about the word partial, meaning it's not permanent, it's not temporary, it's not complete, it's not forever. There's something happening involving a partial. Why? Why? What's the purpose of that? Well, look what he says next. Has come upon Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles have come in. What in the world does that mean? Now skip to verse 30. I'm just giving you where we're headed. We'll be here in three weeks, all right? Look at verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, he's talking to the Gentiles, and the whole Old Testament, Gentiles were completely disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. Now he's talking about the Jews. So too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. That is complicated. That is a strange, what is Paul saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. And this is why we have, I'm starting here so you can understand when I show you verse one, you know where Paul's going. Paul is saying the only people who were surprised by the massive Jewish rejection of Jesus were people. God was not surprised by this. It was actually a part of his plan. In his sovereign grace, to allow as many Gentiles as possible to be included in the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, but that's not the end of the story because then what's gonna happen is that massive influx of the Gentiles is gonna be the very thing that's going to cause some day in the future a massive influx of the Jewish people to join the church and worship Jesus, amen? That should make your heart sing, folks. That's an incredible, incredible, spe- bu- your mind should be boggled. That's why the, if you look at Romans, look the very next thing Paul does is he, bu- he busts out in doxology. He, oh, the mystery of God, his ways are inscrutable. Do you know what inscrutable means? It means mind-boggling, all right? It means there's no way you're gonna be able to wrap your heads around this. This is profound. I wanna remind you something. If you read the book of Acts, One of the things that happens is a pattern all the way throughout the book of Acts. The the original Christians were all Jews, all of them. Peter was Jewish, James was Jewish, Paul was Jewish. They were all Jewish. They recognized Jesus as a Messiah. So what did they do? Naturally, when they wanted to preach the gospel, they'd go into the synagogues and they would proclaim Christ. And to their horror, very few of their brothers and sisters would accept Jesus as Messiah. And a lot of them would say, nope, Jesus is not the one. And not only that, they would be hostile to these proclaimers. But imagine if that had not happened. Now think about this. Imagine if when they went into those synagogues, synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, all of the Jewish people of God accepted Jesus as Messiah. Do you know what would have happened? They wouldn't have gone to the Gentiles. They would have thought, See, this is, just, this is still just the Jewish religion. This is for the Jewish people. This is about, this is about a revival of the Jewish. They would, they would have never been spurred and prompted and kicked out by the spirit of God to go out into every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And so instead what you have is the gospels preached in synagogues, some Jews believe, the remnant, we're gonna see that word in a minute, the vast majority disbelieve, the original Jewish Christians are disturbed by this, And suddenly they find Gentiles are responding in large numbers. And look and behold, what you have is you have a multi-ethnic, diverse church of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to the glory of God. And then Paul says, but that's not even the end of the story. God's going to get even more glory because he's gracious. Okay. Now we can read our passage. Okay, I'm excited. That soccer game did not burn up all of my excitement. Here we go. Romans 11. I'm gonna read to you the first five verses. Then I'm gonna show you the structure, and then I'm gonna tell you why you should care about it, okay? Look at it with me. Verse one. I asked then, has God rejected his people? So remember now, Paul's like, Paul's like I'm not done with my argument. I mean I've said a lot already but I haven't actually finished the argument because the reader could still be going yeah but but Paul what about what about all these all these Jewish people who have who have turned their backs on Jesus the reader could naturally think well maybe God's given up on them completely and he's he's just transferred all the blessings to the gentile church okay so Paul says so what then has God rejected his people by no means For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept For myself, 7,000 men. I want you to underline that phrase. I'm gonna come back to that. I'm gonna preach that, baby. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant elected, by grace, or your, your Bible might say chosen. That's just the word election. We've been talking about this. We're going to talk about it again. Chosen, elected by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's going to make a big deal about grace today, and so I'm going to join him. I'm gonna make a big deal about grace. If you don't get what Paul is saying about grace, it's not just that you don't understand Christianity. You'll never understand what's coming next. You'll never understand what would motivate God to do what he's doing and the way he's doing it in our world to bring as many people as possible into his kingdom. You gotta get grace. Grace has gotta be grace. So what I wanna do is I'm gonna show you the structure. These are not the points in my sermon. I just, sometimes I found it's helpful to see Paul's logic. Paul gives, he puts forward four arguments for why God has not given up on his people, Israel. There's four sort of arguments. All right, there's a couple ways you could describe them, but you see this in your Bible. Um, I'm I'm gonna move through the first three really quick. I'm gonna spend most of my time on number four. Okay, there's the personal argument. Paul talks about himself. It's like what I call the Paul argument. And then in step two, in verse two, there's a theological argument. It's the, it's the election thing, or you're, you notice the word foreknowledge. Step three is the biblical argument. Now Paul goes to the Old Testament. I call this the Elijah argument. He's gonna draw from a story about Elijah. And then last but not least, in fact, most importantly, is the gospel argument, the grace argument. That's where we're headed. I'm gonna move fast and get to grace. Paul's gonna say it's absolutely critical, church, that you get grace, and not just get it as a concept, but that you savor it, you're jealous to protect it, you understand how critical it is. If you don't get grace, nothing else that I'm about to say is gonna gonna make any sense to you. You gotta get grace. And so Paul says, let me take you there. He says, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. And his first argument is the Paul argument. He says, I, look at me. He's, num, verse, look at verse one. By no means, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Paul said, God's not rejected his people. And example number one is me. I'm about as Jewish as you can get. And I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But the thing that's so crazy about this argument, just look at verse one, the thing that what Paul's doing in here is he's saying, we need to continue to have a conversation about ethnic Israel, okay? I'm talking about physical, ethnic, the people who trace their bloodline back to Father Abraham, those people still matter to God. Do they matter to you? Because they matter to God. They matter to God. This morning, on my way to River West, I drove past a synagogue. Did you know we have a wonderful Jewish synagogue right across the street that meets every week? Several hundred Jewish people, none of them believe that Jesus is the Messiah. None of them believe this. Do you know that this morning was the first time that I actually got emotional when I drove past? I feel, I feel terrible about that. What's wrong with me? I drove past a synagogue of God's chosen people and none of them believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And today was the first day where I thought that should be breaking my heart. Because God cares about his people. And Paul says, example number one is me. Because somehow, by the grace of God, my eyes were opened to, to realize Jesus is the Messiah. Astounding. That's just argument number one. Here's argument number two. It's the election argument. See, I'm moving fast. I'm getting to grace. Can you tell? I'm moving fast. You're like, this is the fastest four points I've ever heard this pastor preach. <gasps> okay. Step two in the argument is the election, is the election argument. Four and Look at verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So foreknowledge, the foreknowing of God, before before creation, before anything was spoken into being, God foreknew that Israel would be his people, his chosen people. Now, none of you should be surprised by that. That's common language in the Old Testament. If I said to you, who are the chosen people of God? You'd say the people of Israel. These are God's people, right? But what you might not realize is the number one way that God describes that is foreknowledge. So when you hear foreknowledge, and I already argued this several weeks ago, don't just think awareness about information. It's way more than that. It's not just God knowing things about stuff. Foreknowledge is, is a, it's a divine commitment to have an ongoing relationship of love with, with a people. And God says, The people that I foreknew, the people that will be my people, are the people Israel throughout human history. The classic example of this, I could read dozens of verses. I'm going to put up one. Here's Amos chapter 3, verse 2. I think we have this verse. Oh, yeah, here we go. Look at this. This is the word known. You only, he's talking to Israel. And look what he says You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only. Israel, it's not, Amos is not saying that the the people of Israel are the only people that God was aware of, all right? It's not just knowledge, it's not just head knowledge, information knowledge, he's saying, you are my people. I chose you, I know you deeply. Every commentator agrees What what that's saying and what foreknowledge means is, I've made you my own, like a husband knows his wife. In Genesis, when Adam took his wife, and it says he knew her, okay? He wasn't asking her questions about her childhood, all right? (gasps) It's more than that, all right? It was a deep, intimate knowing, and that's what's happening here. You only have I chosen and taken as my own. And the reason this matters, River West, the reason this matters is we should still be just as startled as Paul is. We should be going, well, then what has happened to that? Does God stop having a people who were the objects of his divine affection? Does he suddenly remove that? How could that be a gracious, faithful God? So Paul says, you gotta wrap your head around this. This matters. It's got to matter in the, in the church that's primarily filled with Gentiles. We need to care about this. Paul says, that's just step two. Here's step three in the argument. I'm moving fast. Now we get to Elijah. So look what he says. He says, God has not rejected his people, verse two, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? This is the Elijah argument. How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord. Verse three, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now, what's happening here? You can go read this later if you want. This is 1 Kings chapter 19. It's the story of Elijah. He's had a crazy day already with a battle with some prophets of Baal, and fire came down. There's amazing, crazy stuff happens, and Elijah finds himself hiding from the king, Ahab, who wants to kill him. And Elijah is in despair. This is like the deepest moment of despair in Elijah's life. And here's what's happening in Elijah's heart. He's going, I feel like I am literally the only Israelite left who still worships Yahweh. The rest of them have turned their backs on God. They've bowed their knee to a false god, Baal. Not only that, they've killed God's prophets, and now they're trying to kill me. And he cries out to God. And I think the reason Paul quotes that story is because Paul's thinking, that's exactly how I feel. I preach the gospel in a synagogue. I'm more likely to be thrown out and have death threats given to me by my kinsmen than for people to respond in faith to Jesus. Paul's like, I feel like I am the only one. You know what's so weird? This was so encouraging for me this week. I don't know about you, but I have these moments in my life where I'll be somewhere in Portland, Kathy and I will often on Monday um I'm usually really exhausted on Monday but Kathy's really energized she wants to go see the world you know what I mean she's like you've been gone all week writing your sermon and now I've got you and then we go down to Portland, and we go to amazing, sweet, bougie coffee shops and art art studios, and it's all super cool and rad. And there we are in Southeast Portland or somewhere, and, and Kathy's having the time of her life, and I'm enjoying a great cup of coffee, and maybe we're looking at some art, but I always have this moment where I, I, I start looking around at all the people. Have you ever done this? You just start looking around. Have, don't, don't do this, because you're gonna get super depressed, okay, because it happens to me every Monday. I look around, and I'm like, I wonder how many of these people know Jesus. Have you ever done that? And then I'm like, I almost always think, I bet the vast majority of them don't. And they don't even really care. And then I get really depressed. And then Kathy sees that I'm depressed and then she's unhappy because she wants me to be happy because it's our date day, right? (laughs) And there I am mourning. And then I think of this passage. And I think, I need to read Romans 11. Because look what... God says next, verse four. Look what he says to Elijah. This was God's reply to him. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I love that phrase. Elijah, don't worry. I'm sovereign. Don't worry. I know it seems bleak, but you know what? I've kept for myself some. I've done this. That is an amazing phrase. Think about the moments in your life when you keep some stuff to yourself. You bake a batch of chocolate chip cookies for your family and what's the very first thing you do? I'm gonna keep the very best ones for me. I made the turkey this year because Kathy, you know, Kathy, my wife is fighting cancer. A lot of you know this. And I'm like, there's no way you're cooking. So I made the turkey. You're looking at a guy who cooked a turkey this year. This is amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And you want to know what the very first thing I did? I kept for myself the best piece of the turkey. The drumstick, because it reminds me of Disneyland, but those massive legs, you see people walk, they look like Genghis Khan, like just tearing meat off. And it's the best part of the meat, I kept that for myself. And here's God saying, don't worry, I'm keeping for myself, son. I know it seems bleak, Paul. I know it seems bleak, Elijah. I know it seems bleak, River Wester, but don't, I'm doing things that you cannot see with physical eyes. Amen? This is good news, folks. This is good news. And here's the amazing thing. One way to get the full force of this argument is to draw attention to what Paul is not doing in this argument, okay? Because some people might read this and go, well, here's what Paul meant. He meant in a time like Elijah's time when it was so bleak and violent and people were just so Immoral, and they were killing prophets and they were idol worshiping. If even in a time like that of total moral bankruptcy, if there were 7,000 who had somehow had the moral fortitude to keep their wits, their spiritual wits, and stay faithful to Yahweh, then probably it's happening today. That is not what Paul's saying. That is not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying the only reason there was anyone in Elijah's day who did not bow their knee to Baal was because God intervened in his grace. And the only reason in our culture, in our world today, there is anyone who has responded to Jesus and the message of the gospel is because God has intervened by his grace. Amen? Amen. You should be celebrating that, folks. This is the the message of the Bible. The natural default position of the human heart is to turn our backs against God. And it's been true from the very beginning. But God in his grace, this is why Paul's gonna say, you gotta get grace. The reason, Paul, that you can be encouraged is because I'm a God of grace, and I've got a plan, and I'm keeping for myself people in every generation, and it's gonna continue. And so Paul says, now, Let me move to the most important argument. It's the grace argument, step four. Look what Paul says in verses five and six. First, he says, so too. He's still looking back at Elijah, that story, and saying, look, the point of that story is to say, even today, God works in the same way. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. Now, that word remnant that word simply means a small remaining quantity. That's what the word means. It's probably obvious to you, but it basically means in all the vast majority of the people of Israel who did not accept Jesus as Messiah, God says there's a remnant, though. There is a group. Now, they might seem small, but there is a group in every generation of Jewish people who recognize Jesus as Messiah, this is beautiful. And look what Paul says next. So there is a remnant, but how? Why would there be a remnant? See, you didn't see this when you read it the first time. This is why I'm going verse by verse and slowing down to make sure that you see the logic. Why would there be a remnant ever? What's the very next phrase? Chosen by grace. Election. Why is there, why is there anyone who believes in Jesus? election by grace. Paul says, oh, you got to get the grace thing. This matters, folks. I'm going to hover here for a little while. I'm not going to rush on because we got to get this. Look at verse 6. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace. So here's what's happening. For some reason, Paul is really concerned that we fight to preserve grace. Do you see that? You gotta make sure grace remains grace. There's a threat to the idea of grace and it's always out there. There's a a little tiny kernel of an idea that you could add to grace and the second you add it, grace is no longer grace. Imagine if I had a jar of really crystal clear water and I just set it here, that's grace. And then imagine if I dropped the tiniest speck of red food coloring into that jar, immediately the whole thing would be changed. Paul says, I'm very jealous that in the church you preserve the purity of this idea of grace because there's always a threat to it and it's a theological threat. And did you see what it was in verse six? Did you see that? What is the word that Paul adds? He says, if you add this to grace, grace is no longer grace. Works. Works. Paul's like, works, works, which is, it, it, means, it means any effort or, or human volition, anything that I add to contribute to my salvation is a work that takes red food coloring and completely tarnishes grace. And Paul says, you gotta fight to preserve that. And folks, this is why he's right back to the doctrine of election. He's right back to election. He goes, there's this this connection. There's this unbreakable connection between purity of grace and election. And I want you to see, Because some of you are like, man, Pastor Adams really talking about, he really wants to talk about election a lot. I actually don't want to talk about election. I'm not the one bringing this up, okay? Paul's bringing this up. And the reason Paul's bringing this up is because it's when you get to the doctrine of election that we're most tempted to add a tiny little bit of works to try to make it work in our head. Do you see that? Like election, ah, this idea that God chooses by his grace, but there's got to be some reason in us why, like, like, why? The number one argument that I hear from Christians I don't like election. Why? Well, it just seems like God is so random. Is he just up there, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, right? And so it seems like it's God's just being random. God's not being random. God's being gracious. Just because I can't see what God's reasons are doesn't mean he doesn't have reasons. The key is whatever his reasons are, they're not located in us. They're located in God's grace. Do you see that? This is so important, folks. I know you're up there going, you're out there going, why are you driving this? I'm driving this because Paul's driving this. Verse six, he underlines, I need to show you the threat to grace that's going to happen over and over and over. Fight against it. Probably the most profound thing I heard, uh, an old preacher, Martin Lloyd Jones. He was preaching in Romans, and he got to this, and, and, he, and he said. He said, a lot of people, when they're struggling with election, okay, this idea of God choosing by grace, what they do is they say, you know, maybe I'll be a happier, more content Christian if I just get rid of that doctrine. I don't believe in election, okay, even though it's in the Bible. But you say, and by the way, I wanna say, a lot of people, a lot of you are not struggling with this. You're like, I, I, I totally get it. It's in the Bible, I believe it. But I know that some people struggle with it. So a lot, So p- some people say, well, if I get rid of election, I'll be a happy, clappy, contented, you know, whole, I won't, have any, I won't be a torn Christian, I'll be content. The problem is you won't, you won't. Because if you, follow, if you f- try to th- then figure out why some people believe and other people don't, eventually you'll get to an answer that demolishes the heart of the gospel. Let me give you an example. There's a place in Acts where Paul preaches the gospel, Acts 28, and when he's done preaching, there's a group of people who are all from the same town, they have the same religious background, they're in the same community, there's very little about them that's different, and when Paul preaches the gospel, it says in Acts, Luke says, some of them believed and some of them disbelieved. And if you do away with election, you'd have to say, well, why? why? Why would some people believe the gospel and some people don't believe the gospel? So then the, natu- the next natural thing the human does, they say, well, because we have free will. We're free to choose. Okay? So what is the difference in the person who chooses to believe versus the person who doesn't, who chooses not to believe? Well, now you have to fill in another step. Well, maybe it's, because they, maybe it's because they saw something in it that made sense to them and the other people didn't. Okay, well, why is that? Now you gotta take it another step. Well, maybe it's because they were more spiritually tuned in than the other person. Now what you have is you have a reason for their salvation that doesn't have anything to do with God anymore. It's something about them being more spiritual, or them being more tuned in, or them being more intelligent, or them being more moral, or them being just more connected somehow to God. But that's not grace. That's works. And Paul says, that will demolish the gospel. And so, yes, I want us to fight for the purity of grace. Amen? Amen? Amen. Here's what I'm gonna do to close. I'm gonna get real practical here, because I know it's it's uh, the idea of election and God's sovereign grace and salvation, the big concepts. So let me let me give you five pastoral words of encouragement. Okay, here's five words. Why you should be you should be encouraged about this, not discouraged. I don't want you to leave here and go, oh my gosh, I want you to leave. and When we're done here, my goal is when you leave here, you are so fired up about God's grace. So five, I chose the word election, but I could be talking about sovereign grace, amazing grace, God's grace and choosing people. There's five words that I think, five sentences I wanna give you that should encourage you, okay, here's the first one, election, sovereign grace, It's not easy, all right? You're like, how in the world is that supposed to be encouraging? (laughs) It's not easy. Here's why it's encouraging. If you're struggling with it, welcome to the party. (laughs) People struggle with this. It's not simple, it's mysterious, it feels supernatural. That, by the way, is one of the number one arguments for why it's probably true. Because God is supernatural, God is mysterious, God is mind boggling and sovereign grace and election, it's not easy. Here's the temptation. The temptation in, in for us, especially as Americans, when something is not easy, we think, well, there must be another alternative that's better. And the problem is, if you scrap election and you try to come up with another alternative way, it creates way more problems than it solves. So just stay with it. Just keep studying, keep thinking, keep wrestling with it. It's there. It's not easy. Here's the second argument about, or the word of encouragement about sovereign grace, election, it will make you so humble. This will make you humble. And what the world needs right now is humble Christians. You say, why why do I say this will will make you humble? Imagine you get to heaven, and you stand before the king, or, or one of the angels or something, and just imagine, this is probably not gonna happen, but imagine somebody says, why are you here? Okay? Why, why, why do you deserve to be here? What you're not gonna say in that moment is, I don't know, I, you know, I just always, always kind of had a spiritual side to me. <laughs> I just was always sort of tuned in spiritually. That's why I'm here. No, and, then, and the angel goes, no, no, why are you here but your, but your twin sister's not here? Or your roommate's not here? Or your daughter or your, or your neighbor? Why are you here and they're, not, they're pretty wonderful people too? Why are you here? What you're not gonna say is, well, I was pretty moral. I was a good person. I hope you're not gonna say that. You're gonna fall on your knees, and you're gonna say, I have absolutely no idea other than one thing, Jesus Christ died for my sins, and somehow by his grace, I was allowed to believe that. I heard a sermon this week, it popped up on my YouTube, and the moment I saw it, I saw the title of this little clip, the title of the clip it was by a, a Scottish Presbyterian preacher named Alistair Begg, all right? You'll be happy to know that in my algorithm, on my computer, YouTube pops up soccer videos and Scottish Presbyterian preachers, okay? <laughs> but anyway, this popped up. Here was the title of the sermon. Think about, I lo- I, the second I saw it, I was like, I am watching this. Here was the title. The title of the sermon was, The Man on the Middle Cross Said I Could Come. And what what Alistair Begg did is he goes, think about that thief on the cross. He goes, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna make a beeline for that guy. And I'm gonna say, how did that go down for you, dude? Because one minute you're hanging there with your other friend who's a thief and you're swearing at the Messiah, you're mocking him. You never went to a single Bible study You didn't sing Kumbaya one time in your entire life. You never watched The Chosen. You never prayed the prayer of Jabez, and you made it. You're here. How are you here? And he's gonna go, I have no idea. And then he's like, imagine an angel saying, why are you here? And then the guy, guy, I have no idea. No, why why are you here? I, I don't have an idea. So he goes and he gets his supervisor, and he comes back, and he says, We need to ask you some questions about Christian theology right now. Like, do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why are you here? And he says, I have no idea. The man on the middle cross said I could come. And so I'm here. That's election by grace. It'll make you humble. Some people say it will make you arrogant. I don't know how you could possibly come to that conclusion. It'll make you humble. And what the world needs is a humble church. Amen? Here's a third word of encouragement. The doctrine of sovereign grace will ignite your prayer life. It will ignite it. Now, this is another one where I've heard people say, actually, the doctrine of sovereign grace, doesn't that, if that's true, if if election is true, wouldn't that cause you to stop praying? It's actually just the opposite. And let me tell you why. If you believe that God in his sovereign grace can save anyone, no matter how, hardened or out there or disbelieving, if you believe that, you will pray your guts out. And I want you to. If you believe that God has to wait for that person to start to show signs of spiritual life or for their blind eyes to begin to wanna see or their deaf ears to begin to wanna hear or if God has to wait for that, eventually, you know what will happen? You'll stop praying because for a lot of people, that may never happen on their own. Amen? But if you believe God could save anyone, what you'll do is you will just start praying. And I wanna I want be a church that prays our guts out for all of our neighbors, everyone. God, please pour out your grace. Amen? Okay, here's a fourth word of encouragement. It will embolden your proclamation, your gospel proclamation. A lot of people say, well that sovereign election will cause people to stop preaching the gospel. No, it won't, just the opposite. Just the opposite. Because if you believe God can save anyone, you will have no qualms about talking about Jesus with people. No matter how hardened or turned off they might seem to be, you'll say, no, God is powerful. God is sovereign. Can I, can I tell you some language that I get really uncomfortable with in the church? Have you ever heard somebody say this? Say, oh man, she would make a great Christian. Have you ever heard that? What the heck does that mean, by the way? She would make a great Christian. I'm gonna share Jesus with her. Okay, friends, let me tell you something. We should, what does that even mean? What we should be doing is we should be saying, that guy would make a terrible Christian. I'm going to share the gospel with him. Amen? It's right. No one looked at Adam when he was 16 and thought he'd make a great Christian. They were like, that guy needs Jesus big time. Amen? So if you believe that, you'll proclaim Jesus boldly with anyone. And I want you to. I have this vivid memory when I did Young Life. I was I was getting applications for a, a trip to Mexico, a Mexico mission trip, and this is one of my worst moments in my ministry. We get this one application, and I see the name. I won't say this kid's whole name, because he, he, he might listen to my sermons. I don't know, this is online. But anyway, his name was Adrian, and I won't say his last name. And I saw the application, I was like, I turned to um, the, there, there was a, my, the senior pastor's wife who was helping me organize the trip. Her name was Sherry, and I said, Sherry, over my dead body, are we gonna let Adrian go to camp, Young Life Camp? He's not going. This kid is a nightmare. This kid is a he's a burden, he is a pain in the neck. And Sherry looked at me like she was gonna punch me in the name of Jesus. And anytime anyone uses my middle name, she was like Adam Robert McMurray. My mother's the only other person who said that to me. Do you believe the gospel? Because Adrian's gotta go on this trip. He, no one ever thought, Adrian will make a great Christian, right? He went on the camp, he came to Christ. We got back from camp. He showed up on my doorstep the very next day and he said, I don't need these anymore. He handed me a paper bag with a handgun in it and a scale that he used to, to deal marijuana at the high school. He was like, I don't need these anymore. And I was like, hallelujah. Jesus saves, amen. Now, Now, who has the power to save someone like that? A sovereign, gracious God. Good? Okay, last one, and then we're done. It'll draw many to our church. There's one reason why people will be drawn to our church. It's God's sovereign grace. That's the whole argument of Romans 9 through 11, remember? The whole argument. God is at work, God is electing, We got to chapter 10, Pastor Christopher, last week. That doesn't mean we don't preach the gospel. We actually preach the gospel because we know God uses the gospel to save people. So we're we're a gospel church. We're preaching the gospel. We believe all this. Paul says that is the thing that will draw people into the church. So I want us to be, I want you to be humble. I want you to be a prayer warrior. I want you to pray for the most hardened people in your life. I want you to pray with absolute hope. I want you to boldly talk about Jesus. And then I want us to see what God does in our church. Amen? What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read to you where Paul goes next, and then I'm gonna, it'll be the setup for next week. So look now at Romans and I'm just gonna show you the, the transition to where we'll go next Sunday. I'm just gonna read this. Verse seven. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but election obtained it. That should say election obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. We're now back to the big argument. Paul's saying, why in the world would, in my purposes, why would, why would the people of Israel be hardened temporarily? Remember this? And this is something God's doing. He's temporarily hardening. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs. It's the same argument. None of this caught God off guard. God's doing something. He's spurring the early church out to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Now look at verse 11. I didn't even put this verse on the screen, but you have your own Bible. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. What does that mean? The massive spread of the gospel into the Gentile world One of the purposes was to make the original people of God jealous so that they would be drawn to Messiah. Come back next Sunday, we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for your word. It's mind-boggling, it is powerful, it's true. Every word that we just read is true. We need your help to see our world and human history and your plan through the lens of your word. And it's strange and sophisticated and amazing and we rejoice in it. And most of all, we rejoice in your grace. Amazing grace. How could it possibly be, God, that you would pour out grace on me? How could it be? As we sing about that this morning, I pray, Lord, you would open our hearts, capture us. Would you make the connection right now, Lord, between the the lyric we're about to sing and the meal we're about to eat? This profound truth, Jesus. You died to take away the sins of the most wretched sinner like me. Amazing grace. And so capture us, Lord, we pray, and we ask it together in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen.